Chris Walford was right. It was that spirit that was leading me. A lot of people get fascinated with this, but really what they don't realize what gets them is that spirit. I never painted a picture for anybody. You know, that's not why I set out painting pictures. When I started painting pictures, I did it for my own sanity. And when I started writing songs, I never wrote a song for anybody but myself. And I still ain't done that. I've had to sell out and paint some commissions from time to time, <laughs> but I ain't never wrote a song for nobody except for me. I know that's going to relegate me to a uh, unknown and kind of a marginal side of the music industry, but I'm totally okay with that because I'm able to uh, be proud of what I've done. And it'll be the same way with this. If this thing ever turns into money or if this thing ever turns into fame or whatever, the important thing in all this is that it's made me better. It's made my life more rich. And it's given me experiences that I will cherish for the rest of my life. And it's opened my eyes to new ways of thinking and new ways of living that I never even considered. And it's done more to change my perspective on God and religion and on faith and on art and on music and on beauty, risk. And it's put me in the seat of having to make so many heavy moral and spiritual decisions that I never thought I would have to encounter. I mean, you can't buy what I've experienced. The richest man in the world could not buy what I've learned and what I've experienced over the past year. What is that? It's the exploration into the deep and dark. And when I say dark, I don't mean dark as in evil, but dark as in um, hard to see. Spiritual side of life, the spiritual side of reality. Being face to face with the free handling of serpents and fire and the consumption of poisons, you know, and then all the questions that arise from that. And then the exploration of those questions and then the complete change that took place in me as I approached it with complete sincerity and honesty. You know, it, it, that's the kind of thing that money can't buy. It's metamorphosis. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that makes life livable. This is what you live for. Experiences like these, creating things like we created We've created something that's going to make the world a better place. Now, to what extent? Who knows? Maybe a thousand people hear it, and 500 of them are immediately repulsed, and they turn it off. <laughs> and maybe 300 of them, they make it about halfway, and they just, it just loses their interest. And maybe 100 of them are like listen to the whole thing and say it's pretty good. But then maybe there's another hundred that listen to it, and it's the greatest thing they ever heard. And then maybe there's 10 people out of that thousand. There's something in it that changes their life. Totally changes the whole trajectory of their life for the better. Well, then those 10 people pursue a new type of beauty in their own little world that they wouldn't have without this podcast. And through that pursuit, they create beauty in their own little world. And most people don't give a about the beauty they created. But there are some people that changes their life. So it's like a ripple effect that goes out through eternity. Just the fact that this now exists, it's one of the proudest things I've ever, that I've ever had a hand in doing. You know, that Coots Duo record, brother, is perfect. It's perfect. 
And it ain't because I'm playing guitar or we had any part in it. It's because it is the most pure and authentic gospel record I've ever heard in my entire life. There was not one iota of pretentiousness in that studio that day. They had no idea that we were going to try to play these songs to thousands of people. They don't want to be stars, dude. You asked him what he wanted. He wants to go to England and play for free. That's all he wants to do. I don't know what's going to happen, bud, but whatever happens, it doesn't matter as much to me as what this whole journey has meant to me. Whether or not people receive it or not, if we get rejected by every dang podcast company or whatever they call themselves, like if NPR listened to this and they wrote back and it's like, this sucks, you could not change my mind. I know it doesn't suck. I don't even need somebody to critique it. I already know it's good. And I know that you're not supposed to be that way as an artist, and I'm not in a lot of my other art. You know, when I put out a record, I seek other people's input and, and things like that. But, you know, I know that this is significant. I know it's a powerful story if people are open to such things. Farrell is interviewing Dennis Covington, author of the book that initiated Wonder in Abe and set him on course visiting serpent-handling churches across Appalachia. There's my buddy that we were talking about, me and his wife. Uh, Charles. Oh, McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he, he wasn't going to the church anymore uh, on Sand Mountain. Before this conversation, Farrell corresponded for a few days by email with Mr. Covington. When the author agreed to be interviewed, Farrell was surprised. And I remember we were on his front porch, and he, oh, God, what did he do to me? Mr. Covington is in a vulnerable place at the moment. From what he'd recently learned of the man, Farrell presumed he probably wouldn't want to do the interview. He anointed me with his tears. It was incredible. It was one of the most spiritual experiences that that I could ever have imagined. How do you mean, Mr. Covington? How how is that actually done? How does somebody anoint you with tears? I mean, did he did he cry first and then I, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I'm just telling you that he did it. Mr. Covington is having a bit of trouble today, remembering names of serpent handlers and events involving them, who made an undeniable impression on the man for nearly 30 years. His difficulty stems from an event that happened in Aleppo, Syria, detailed in his most recent book published in 2014, an autobiographical account called Revelation. It details Mr. Covington's dangerous journey into Aleppo during a tumultuous time when American journalists had been captured and beheaded nearby. We cannot show you this full ISIS video due to its highly graphic nature, but in it, James Foley, a freelance journalist, was executed by ISIS, beheaded after being kidnapped in northwest Syria. Covington risked his life to travel to the war-torn region in hopes that he might stand in the great Umayyad Mosque, It was an Islamic mosque, he wrote, describing that experience, which happened at an intersection where the three major monotheistic religions collided. Mr. Covington described his quest as one to restore his faith. The following passage is from his book, Revelation. Quote, It was the loudest blast I ever heard, but I felt it more than I heard it. I knew then that I had been injured internally. 
In an email to Farrell, he wrote, I've been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, which is the worst of the three dementias. My neurologist and I trace it back to a closed head injury I suffered during the fighting in Aleppo, Syria in 2013. All I mean to say is, I might not be as sharp as I used to be. After I preached, the guy who hated me, uh, I've forgotten his, this guy's name, too. You, you probably know it. Because both he and his wife died of snake bite eventually. But when, after I preached, he preached. And he had a big, you know, six-foot cane break rattlesnake on his <laughs> shoulders. And, oh, my God. He really preached against me hard. Punk and Brown. There you go. God, you're, you're amazing. How do you know all this stuff? My friend Abe, you know, he's brought me in. But I uh, I love both of y'all's journey. I'm, I'm, but yeah, that, that scene was incredibly intense. What did Billy Summerford mean when he said Dennis Covington apologized to the congregation of Old Rock House Holiness Church? What was the story there? Did it happen? Did it not? What seems to be their attitude toward Covington, Abe? And are you absolutely sure that there was an apology? Billy Salverford got up and pointed to a place in the church there and said that Dennis Covington wrote that book. He came back right here after it was published and apologized. I just thought it was odd that on my very first service I ever go to, after reading Dennis Covington's book, that's what they said. That was the first inkling I had that maybe uh, there was something awry with the, with the way that this book was viewed amongst the serpent handlers. Farrell has the unenviable task of bringing Abe together with Mr. Covington in Lubbock, Texas, so that Abe can ask the author this one pressing question. Was everything that Mr. Covington detailed in his book the finalist for the National Book Award, Salvation on Sand Mountain, to be taken as gospel? In this podcast, even at the very front of this podcast, we told people that this is not a podcast about religion. And this is a podcast about serpent handling music, serpent handling songs, and about the power of their art. But when you're talking about these people, it is impossible to discuss them without discussing their beliefs and the reasons for them. When Abe paints, he paints outside, even in the summertime, in the brutal Alabama heat. He swats flies, sweats, and dips his brush into jars of days-old paint water, which turns rancid as he works. As he makes art, he listens to sites featuring new songs across many genres, songs he often passes along to Farrell, like this one by Jeffrey Lewis. Don't let the record label take you out to lunch. It's you that's got to pay at the end of the day. And try not to get people to like you too much. You'll just need more and more flatteries to recharge your batteries. Don't let showmanship get more important than honesty. If you don't want to be like so many singers you see, <laughs> dude, I could go on. If you was an artist and you base your entire career off that song, you would fare really well, dude. You might not get rich, but you would be happy. But this morning, he did not listen to songs. Instead, he let a YouTube channel play recommended videos, which happened to be religious in nature. The reason it was recommended to me was I started listening to, like Jimmy Morrow is what they call oneness. He believes in the oneness of God. So I had been listening to debates on that. I was trying to get a hold on what all that was. 
At the 20-minute mark of a video featuring a formal debate between a Christian apologist and a Muslim apologist, Abe was flabbergasted to hear a highly unexpected train of thought erupt from the Muslim, especially for this sort of forum. But also, perhaps, it was the perfect strategy. The Bible has a scientific test how to identify a true believer. Here's Zakir Naik in defense of his book, The Bible and the Quran in the Light of Science. It's mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 16, verse number 17 and 18. It says, there will be signs for true believers, and among the signs, in my name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak foreign tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink deadly poison, they shall not be harmed. And when they place their hand over the sick, they shall be cured. This is a scientific test for a true Christian believer. Nike's opponent is Christian apologist Dr. William Campbell, who sits expressionless stage right. Dr. William Campbell, a person who is not a true Christian believer will never attempt this test. And I assume he is a true Christian believer. And I would like him to confirm to me about the falsification test. Please be rest assured. Please be rest assured. I will not ask Dr. William Campbell to have deadly poison because I don't want to jeopardize the debate. <laughs> what I'll do, I will only ask him to speak in foreign tongues. It seems Dr. Nike has presumed correctly. Well, Dr. Nike has brought up some real problems. <laughs> His opponent will not be interested in performing any of the signs of Mark 16 today. In the past 10 years of my life, I've personally interacted with thousands of Christians. I have not come across a single Christian who has passed this confirmatory test of the Bible. I have not come across a single Christian who took poison. I have not come across any who took poison and who has not died. I did not send that debate to you thinking that it was for the podcast. I just thought it was incredibly interesting. It was just one of those recommended YouTube videos that kind of like, it grabbed my attention. Like, whoa, man, here, you know, here's a Muslim apologist asking a Christian the exact questions that, that I've had, <laughs> you know? <laughs> After you called me and said, oh no, this is gonna be gold. Well, this is what I wanna say about it. If somebody asked me to come on their Bible podcast and talk and, <laughs> and debate them, I mean, it's hard no, dude, hard no. I'm not interested in coming to your church. I'm not interested in coming on your Bible program to talk about the charismatic movement or the speaking in tongues or the Mark 16 and the validity of the Greek text that backs. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm talking about a people. I'm talking about a faith that I've witnessed with my own eyes. I do not care to make theological points in this podcast. When I'm talking about these scriptural points and when I'm talking about these theological ideas, it ain't because I'm trying to convince anyone of them or put myself on a hill. That ain't what I'm doing. All I'm doing is telling you that these people have scriptural justification for what they believe in. I don't know what they said in the debate, and dude, it really ain't important what they said in that debate because uh, I can go ahead and list for you the possible things that they could say. Do it. Looking at those guys, 
the likely thing that they said was the last part of the book of Mark, chapter 16, is not in the original manuscripts. Which, can you imagine making that type of argumentation to a Muslim apologist? Oh, well, that's not in the early manuscripts. Well, number one, you don't even have any of the original manuscripts that were written. They are gone. They are lost to time. And then you're going to have to make the argument that this Muslim can go down to his Walmart and he can buy a Bible, the most published English version in the world of all time is the King James Version. And then you can open up to Mark 16 and it reads just like he read it. I mean, go for it. If you want to argue with Muslims on the validity of the last few verses of the book of Mark 16, whether or not it's in the original manuscripts, <laughs> good luck convincing them of that. Again, dude, this is not a hill I'm ready to fight or die on. But um, with the serpent handlers, if you live in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, you can go down to the Walmart and you can buy you a King James Bible and you open it up and there it is, Mark 16. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Am I supposed to believe that from 1611, when the King James Bible was published, to whenever your textual critics came along and decided that those verses were an error, that God just intentionally misled people? He'll say something along the lines of those were early signs that were given to the apostles, and they died with the apostles. And he'll say something like that, which, like I said, good luck making that argument to a Muslim apologist. It would sound like you're running from the text. That's what it would sound like. You would have textual argument. You would have cessation of sign gifts. And other than that, I don't believe there would be any other argument than if it came from a serpent handler who would just be like, well, hold my serpent box, buddy, and watch this. <laughs> Moreover, if you look at that particular passage of Scripture in the book of Mark, it isn't just a few verses on a page. It is actually the last words of Jesus Christ to his apostles before he ascended into heaven. And if you think about who Jesus was, which is the main character of the entire book, okay, and his last words to his apostles, the 11 that remained before he ascended into heaven, where you take up serpents, and if you drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, lay hands on the sick, speak in new tongues, and cast out devils. Well, it's the last words of Jesus. And you're throwing stones at them because you don't believe that they've sought this out in the scriptures for themselves. They have just as much scriptural basis for their practice as many. And we could name them. I don't think it's important to do so. You know, if we're going to start naming things that seem a little bit crazy in different religious practices, I mean, we, we could be here all day. We can make a whole podcast just about that. There's a lot of things that are a little bit wild about different elements of things that people believe even within Christendom. I'm not interested in debating. I'm not interested in wrestling over scriptures. That is not what I'm interested in doing. I'm telling you that these people believe what they believe and they have scriptural justification for doing so. And I bet you they would be more able to tell you their scriptural justification for what they do than 90% of people that go to church Sunday to Sunday. One of the things that people always love to do is say, well, you based your whole entire theology on one verse. I think it's important for us to point out in this podcast at some point, there's no written down ways in which the serpent handling churches are to conduct themselves. Each one is autonomous, whose only connection with each other is that they believe the same way. Now, that being said, serpent handling, poison drinking, these kind of things 
if you go to any of their churches, I mean, I've been to service before that lasted six hours, and I would say that the average service is about two hours long. The most that I have ever personally witnessed out of attending bunches and bunches of meetings, the most I've ever seen serpents handled or poison drank in any one service was maybe 10 minutes, maybe. And if you compare that to the duration of these services, it's just a small percentage of what these people do. I mean, yeah, they believe those verses and they interpret them literally, but does not define their entire religion. Their entire religious experience is not summed up in one verse. That is one part of their broader religious experience. And this is the problem with photographers. This is the problem with journalists that cover these people. You can see a video about a serpent handling church, and all you see in the 30-minute report on the serpent handling church is the videos of people handling serpents. However, if you went to that service, it would have likely lasted between two and six hours, and for about 10 minutes, there would have been serpents out. So it's not the entirety of their theology. It's not the entirety of their religious experience. It's just a small part. I mean, I know the ways in which people try to work themselves around it. I mean, you heard the Muslim apologists. Oh, yeah. If you look at all the comments under that video, too, it's unanimous. I mean, you heard the auditorium cheering when the Christian was faced with performing any of the five signs. I would like him to confirm to me about the falsification test. Everyone says that man got whooped. Yeah. Well, I know a couple of preachers he wouldn't have whooped. <laughs> All I'm saying is there is a reasoning and a logic behind it. That's the point I've been trying to make when we talk about these theological ideas and these scriptural positions. I think I've said it earlier in the podcast, I'm not a serpent-handling preacher. I'm not a serpent-handler. I'm not trying to propagate this religion. If you want a serpent-handling preacher, I can take you to some fine ones. (laughs) I'm not interested in making any of those type of commitments to a certain scriptural position. That ain't where I'm at in all this. I'm just telling you. Then what are you? You're not a serpent handler. You're not a preacher. You're not an independent fundamental Baptist. You tell me you are considered by some to be an apostate. You get mad at me when I call you a journalist. You say you won't let anyone call you a Christian. I think by this time, there's got to be some people out there who are listening along and they want to know what you are. What are you? I mean, I'm, I'm free. I'm a free man. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Pastor Billy Summerford, the longtime preacher of Old Rock House Holiness Church, is dying. Billy Summerford has cancer on his brain and on both of his lungs. And, uh... I asked if they could give him any type of timeline. He said, well, they were talking about doing a biopsy, but he wasn't sure he was going to let them do it or not. Billy Summerford has been given only two weeks to live. So when he found this out, Abe dropped everything, snatched up his Sony handheld recorder, and made a beeline to the pastor's home on Sand Mountain, Alabama. Meanwhile, Farrell has booked an in-person meeting for Mr. Covington to be interviewed by Abe in Lubbock, Texas. Mr. Covington currently resides in Lubbock after spending the last 20 years teaching creative writing at Texas Tech University. In a few days, Abe will pick up Farrell in Houston, and the two will drive seven hours to Mr. Covington while trying not to overburden or trouble the man who is now suffering from his aforementioned condition. 
here's something else that's funny. Salvation on Sand Mountain records the founding of that church. And uh, it might just be a providential plan that here we are. It could possibly be recording the demise of the church, you know? This is not a podcast about religion. This is not a podcast about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling snakes, drinking harmful substances, or any other acts of great faith. This is a podcast about songs, songs of them that believe the signs, that have never before taken their rightful place on the shelves of Americana. And perhaps that's because they are songs about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking harmful substances, and other acts of great faith. This is the story of an ex-preacher turned songwriter named Abe Partridge, who took a $750 Sony handheld recorder, along with an open heart, to churches and homes of serpent handlers across Appalachia. Today's field recordings were conducted at the home of Pastor Billy Summerford, longtime preacher of Old Rock House Holiness Church. Also, the home of a close friend of Dennis Covington in the suburbs of Lubbock, Texas. And finally, the Church of Jimmy Morrow at Wina Church of God in Jesus' name. This is Alabama Astronaut, hosted by Farrell Gibbs. Abe is parked outside of the home of Billy Summerford. What are you going to ask him? Primarily just about his life and talk to him about some of the things he's seen over the course of his ministry. Throughout his year-long documenting quest, Abe has taken in many services at Old Rock House Holiness Church, several since those first and occasionally rattling days we covered in Episode 3. Said that there was this kid that his family had brought him to church there to Billy Summerford because they had heard about Brother Billy and they took him up to the church there and the doctors had given him two weeks to live. He was wheelchair bound. He said that he was up preaching and God told him to go put a rattlesnake behind the kid on his wheelchair and he did and the, the rattlesnake died and the boy was healed. Said the boy's like 30 years old and has a family now. And, uh, I want to get Billy telling me that. I'd also like to find that kid's name and go track the dude down and talk to him about it. But nowadays, Abe has developed many friendships within the church. He is welcomed and greeted like a brother. And as usual, he is often asked to sing. One night, he was even asked by Billy Summerford himself to preach. Of course, Abe politely declined. Billy told me that his wife, her name was Joyce. Now, she died a few years ago. But his wife, Joyce, was a prophet, and that everything she ever foretold came to pass. That if she ever prophesied, it always came true. Well, then he told me at Rock House that Joyce had come to him in a dream, and uh, she had told him that, that he was coming home. And now, you know, he's got all this cancer. I'd like to get those stories recounted by him because they're pretty amazing, you know. I'd also like to ask him about Dennis Covington, and I'd also like to talk to him about, you know, music. Other than that, I just wanted to reflect on his life and everything. What I plan on doing is I'll make a big painting, and uh, it'll be part of my exhibit. 
and I'll put his voice in the paint. It'll be like the last testament of Billy Somerford. If he ends up passing, you know, John could still do a miracle. You know, his wife told him he was coming home a few months ago, and she was never wrong. And so he believes that. You know what I mean? Now I'm just sitting here in front of Billy Summerford's house. I was supposed to be here at noon. I got here at 11.52. And, uh, I knocked on his door, called his telephone. I hear it ringing inside his house. I hear his dog barking inside his house. And he ain't coming to the door. Walked over, went into the church. There ain't nobody in the church. I went into the fellowship hall, nobody in the fellowship hall. Walked in there, it's pitch black. I hollered his name. There ain't nobody in there. Yesterday, Abe was told by a member of Old Rock House that Billy, who is incredibly sick, would be happy to meet with Abe. Nobody is answering the door, even though several cars are parked out front. Are there any cars there, Abe? There's two cars here, yeah. <laughs> hey, they're in there, and they're just not coming to the door and not making any attempt to see me, or no one's there. Somebody might have taken him to a doctor's appointment. I'm going to go back into Rainsville and grab a hamburger or something for lunch, and then I'm going to come back out in about an hour. Turns out, Abe is exactly right. A member of the congregation came by this morning and drove Pastor Summerford to the hospital in Huntsville. He gets there, and the doctors tell Mr. Summerford that nothing can be done. They won't attempt chemotherapy, nor any kind of treatment. The preacher is too far gone. He is sent back to Sand Mountain, and encouraged to keep drinking his insure. Abe stays the night in a hotel in nearby Rainsville. The next day, the family calls. They tell Abe he is welcome to come over. When Abe arrives, he is surprised to find that several people are there to visit Mr. Summerford, many folks who he knows, including Pastor Gregory Coots, Cody's grandfather, a quiet, contemplative-type man who drove all the way from Middlesboro, Kentucky, to be at Billy's bedside. His sister came to the door. She's like, yeah, I recognize you. I said, well, I just came to see Brother Billy. And she said, well, come on in. I went into his house. and They said he was in his bedroom. So I went into his bedroom. And Greg, too, he was there. And uh, two of the men from Middlesboro, I just went in there with him. Greg and his brother Arnie and them are sitting there on the bed. They told me to sit down with them, so I sat down there. I was there for two hours, dude. I said, Brother Billy, I'd like to record you giving your testimony here. I just want to, uh, I know a lot of the brethren have said that they wanted to, I had mentioned that I was trying to come over here and get you just to talk to me about your testimony and about your ministry, if you could, before, um, you know, before you go on to be with the Lord. And I still believe God can do miracles, though. Yeah. He's a miracle-working man. <laughs> yes. I sat down with him, and the other men left, and they put mute on the TV. I'm from Mobile. down. I'm, it's, I'm six hours from home right now. But I came up here because I wanted to tell you that. And I appreciate you. And I, I love all these boys. I mean, if they... And Billy is in a wheelchair. He can't barely move. He has to be fed. Even since the homecoming, he's degraded big time. And, uh, dude, it was sad, really. I tried to get some stuff out of him. I'd ask him a question, he'd think about it for a few minutes, he'd answer it, and then he'd come out. 
So what I thought I'd get, I definitely didn't get. So you, you were married for a good number of years, wasn't you, preacher? Been Joyce married 50-something years. Yeah, something like 50 years. How long ago did she pass? She's been passed about four years, I guess. You told me one time that she had the gift of prophesying. Yeah. Your hand okay? Yeah, it gets, it gets to hurting a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I've been sleeping a few times, though. How many times, you reckon? I don't know. I've been a pretty good bit of times. A time or two real bad. Never did have to go to the doctor, though. Thank God for that. Mm -hmm. How long have you been pastoring out here at the church? Probably 30 years, 31. 31 years. I know you've seen some miracles and things yeah. out here, haven't you? We've seen some good healing out here. was telling me one time about a boy that y'all healed that only had a few weeks to live. You remember that story? Yeah, that boy was dying. And the Lord took over and healed him. Yeah, how did that happen? Do you remember? Did, how, did the, how did the family know to bring him out here? I know it was just a church thing, and they brought him, and the Lord healed him. Mm -hmm. I mean, completely healed him, son. Completely healed him. Praise God. I pray the Lord moved for that feller. What was his name? Do you remember? I can't remember it. Well, it says, they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover, don't it? He was trying to, it looked like he was trying to get up out of the wheelchair. And I said, Brother Billy, what do you need? I said, I'll help you get whatever you need. You need to get out of here? You need to go get some? I have to hold my brother if I get home. You want me to get him for you? I don't know where he went to. Well, I had to go call his brother in there. It was pitiful, but, you know, there I was. Hey, Brother Arnie, Brother Billy's wanting you in here. Well, then me and Greg walked outside while they were in there. I said, brother, I wish I would have known you was going to be here. I said, I got some surprises for you. Something incredible has been happening. People across the faith have started to allow Abe to archive some of their treasures. I told him I found that 45, that white label. Yeah. He's plumb excited, dude. He was? Yeah, he was tickled to death. He was like, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I got it. Besides several old, dusty VHS tapes containing multiple instances of songs Abe's been after, he has also been allowed to archive CDs, cassettes, 8mm tapes, magazines, musical instruments, guitar picks, not to mention the two entirely handwritten songbooks by Tom and Greg Coots, as well as a comic book from 1946 called The Picture News, containing a piece of semi-fiction called Snake Worship in Virginia, which depicts good guys from the armed forces of the Commonwealth beating the absolute crap out of men and women snake handling on a hillside worship service. Of course, it was an artifact that made Abe's eyes bug out. Because he has developed a reputation for timeliness, and for conscientiously returning the tapes and records to their owners. The members of the faith have been gifting Abe all the more incredible treasures. Right now, he is telling Greg Coots of an incredibly obscure record that he almost got his hands on, on eBay. There was one that got sold online for $30 back in May. Somebody paid $30 for it. Well, what, what, Mm-hmm. I've been trying to find out the name of the person that bought it. Yeah. And I was going to offer them, you know, $60 for it. I was going to give them twice their money for it if they just let us get it. You couldn't find out who bought it or who got it? I haven't, not yet, but oh. I found the man who sold it, and I have wrote the man that sold it, and I asked him if he would tell me who bought it. What's his name? They call him 
It's a record store. I think it's out of like New Hampshire or something. I don't know how he got it, but it was up there. I don't know either. Yeah. Farrell wrote the seller and said, quote, I know the Coots Duet album that you listed has sold to an anonymous user. My friend Abe and I are friends with the family. We know they would absolutely treasure the record. Would you mind passing along a message to the new owner of the record? We would pay double or more for what he or she paid for the record. The original seller wrote Farrell back and said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And even if I could, one of the biggest gospel collectors in the country has purchased this album. People spend years looking for this stuff, and there's no way he'd part with it. I'd love to help, but the best I can do is to notify you if I see it again. That's a very, very rare record, though. It might take a couple of years for it to surface again. When Farrell heard this, it was further evidence for him that Abe seemed to possess something incredibly special. The eye for precious artifacts, recordings, and records, and the great reward of discovering art that's hidden from the plain view of the mainstream. Farrell has begun to realize that Abe personifies, by all comparisons, the great pioneers John Avery Lomax and Alan Lomax. It was recorded by a producer in Johnson City, Tennessee, by the name of Jim Stanton. Well, I looked up Jim Stanton and I found out that Jim Stanton was actually the first person to ever sign the Stanley Brothers to a record deal. Now, the Stanley Brothers are one of my favorite groups of all time. I mean, that was kind of like what got me into bluegrass and banjo picking and all that back whenever I was a teenager. You know, with Flatt and Scruggs and with Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, they were kind of like part of that holy trinity of bluegrass music. Stanley Brothers, Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, and Flatt and Scruggs, the biggest names in bluegrass music that there ever was. Farrell realizes that in the time he spent with Abe, nothing makes Abe light up more than talking about a hard-to-find, rare, precious album or a person with a story that needs to be told, but whose society will probably never ask to tell it. Perhaps Abe has indeed been many things. Ex-preacher, airman, folk artist, songwriter, and song catcher. But now it occurs to Farrell, what if more than anything else, Abe Partridge is a -a once-in-a-generation documentarian. Yeah, so Jim Stanton recorded the Coots duet. It was Tom Coots and Lou. Every song on there is original song to Tom Coots, with exception of that one Leuven Brothers song that they recorded, The Devil is Real. That was the last thing they recorded, to my knowledge. But now, prior to that, I know two EPs that exist, two 45 RPM 7-inch records with two songs per side. One had a white label, one had a gold label. That's the way Greg Coots referred to them as. Well, the Coots family took a flood. I think this was back in somewhere in the early 2000. I remember when I lived in Middlesbrough in 2006, we took a flood too, and I had about four foot of standing water in my basement. It could have been that very same flood. A state of emergency continues for the state of Kentucky as rising floodwaters caused even more evacuations. Certain areas have gotten more than six inches of rain in two days' time, leading to more and more damage to local businesses and homes. 
when they had that flood, their basement flooded and a bunch of the tapes and the records from Tom Coots were destroyed, which is really sickening because, uh, you know, Greg said they used to have reel-to-reel tapes of him preaching and singing on the radio. And so at the present, the Coots family, they only have just one copy of The Devil is Real. That's all they had. And the other two EPs that they recorded, they could never find. Well, whenever I found out about the existence of those EPs, I had found that there was a seller who had obtained the white label 45, and it was actually put out on a label called Pennant. Jesus Made the World is actually on that record, and it's a different version than they made on their LP. Now on the day of Pentecost, Holy Ghost come down, Peter stood and told them, this is the fire. What the guy did do before he sold it was he digitized it and uh, put it on YouTube. Well, I went and found it on YouTube and downloaded it, and then I burned copies and made CDs of it for Cody and Greg and Andrew as well, and I let them, you know, gave them all a, a picture of what the scanned the labels look like on that 45 and that was the first time greg you know has had that music since he lost it in the flood and he was real thankful for that that was the surprise that i had for him we're still in search of the gold label 45 i still haven't found it to my knowledge, there were 500 copies pressed of the LP and both the 45. So that means that there's only 1,500 of these in existence, 500 of the LP, 500 of each of the 45. I've only held in my hand one, and that was that LP. But we're still in search of the gold label 45 because uh, we don't even have any idea what songs are on it. I tried to get Greg or Cody to tell me what songs were on it. Neither one of them remember. And maybe this podcast will help us unearth that gold label as well. So it could be Tom Coots or Thomas Coots or Thomas Coots and his wife Lou or the Coots duet. We're not sure how they would be listed, but um, there's a gold label EP that exists out there, and if you find it, I will pay you for it. Whenever I'm outside, one of his people over here, but one of the men in his church said he had a bunch of old VHS that he was going to let me digitize. And I said, well, brother, I said, I would sure love to hear it. That would be real good. Get those transferred over to where they don't. Now, them old, them old cassettes, the older they get, the worse the sound, you know, get moldy and all kinds of stuff. And I'll make sure that they get digitized. I'll bring you back digital copies and the originals, too. Well, brother Billy, I'm going to run on. It was a, it's good seeing you. Good seeing you, brother. And, uh, you praying for me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Maybe I can see you right now. I'm, I'm praying, praying for a miracle. Yeah, that's what take. Yes, sir. You know, I had the intention of asking him about Dennis Covington. I mean, I heard him preach it from the pulpit, but... Uh, his condition just wouldn't allow me to ask stuff like that. The Covington thing in the grand scheme of things is far less important than, you know, the way you handled that situation at Billy Summerford's house. I thought you were extremely delicate 
with everyone and you treated them with great respect. Very cool to hear that tape. That's unbelievable, man, that they allowed me to come in there and sit on the bed. You know, I mean, I'm in Billy Summerford's bedroom, dude. You know, recording him talking. I mean, it's just, I just can't believe the access that they've granted me. You know what I mean? They're good folks, man. You know, we sat on their front porch for like an hour. It was sad. It was so sad. As Billy Summerford contends with his illness, all the more illuminated is Abe's reasoning for documenting this group. Turns out, over the span of his life, Billy Summerford must have shied away from interviews because there are not many available. As a matter of fact, the only interview featuring Billy Summerford that we could find online at the time of this recording was a two-hour immersive interview conducted by Drs. Ralph Hood and Paul Williamson. Drs. Hood and Williamson's book, Them That Believe, has been referenced throughout this podcast. I didn't go to church because I was sick. I know if I didn't do something, I was dying and headed to hell. Billy basically just said that uh, he was a sickly person and that he never would go to church on account of being so ill all the time. Because I weighed 130 pounds. I got sick, had heart trouble, had sugar, had high blood, had a hernia. Taking like 27 pills a day. He started going to a holiness church where they handle serpents. And he began to pray and ask God to give him the anointing to, to handle the serpents. First time I ever took that, down toward the bucket of pocket. one, in the back of the truck, brought him home, prayed about an hour and a half after a summer act. Lord, let me take him up. I told my wife, I said, there's more to it. And just going to church. I said, you ever read the two verses in the last chapter of Mark? Him and a friend of his went out, and he said he caught a copperhead about the size of a half dollar, put it in a sandy spot, and then he prayed for about an hour. And Rich, I went back that truck, took that copperhead out. That snake couldn't bite it, couldn't even crawl, couldn't do nothing. That circle rolled over, and it was dead. It rolled over dead. And I told nobody much about this. My wife saw it. And he said the copperhead turned over and died in his hands. He also was, according to his testimony there, he was the one that encouraged Glenn to get into serpent handling. I told my cousin Glenn, I said, I know some boys that bring serpents into your church if you would let them. So I reckon that's about the first Jesus name man around here that encouraged that to be done. Dr. Hood and Williamson's book, them That Believe has been referenced throughout this podcast as the definitive work on the serpent handling faith. I don't know if anybody will ever feel anything out of this or not, but you know, this is my life. Sure, this is my life, brother. Yeah. Speaking with Farrell is Dr. Ralph Hood, Leroy A. Martin Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where he specializes in the psychology of religion. Also, co-author of a book with none other than Pastor Jimmy Morrow called Handling Serpents. America is a unique country. It has granted people the absolute right to their religious beliefs. The Supreme Court has never, ever challenged anybody about the content of their religious beliefs. The only criteria they use is sincerity. So the question to the court has always been, it's not a question of whether or not 
that's a theologically correct interpretation of Scripture. It's a question of whether or not the believers are sincere in their belief, authentic. You can accuse the serpent handlers of all kinds of things, but not of being insincere. I was with Jimmy Coots. Jimmy Coots got bit, and he has interviews. He said, if I ever get bit, I would never seek medical care. And if I ever got bit and did seek medical care, because you never know what you'll do, he said he would quit handling servants. He was seriously bit. They took him to his home to pray for him. Somebody, I don't know who, called 911. They came to provide assistance. His wife refused to allow them in, signed the release, and Jamie Coots died from a serpent bite without medical care, believing that he was being obedient to God and his salvation was assured. Dr. Hood, you have met Abe Partridge. You know what he's doing. You've heard some of the music that he has been recording and you've been listening to this music for many years. We started this whole podcast off by quoting your book, page 190 of Them That Believe, where you and Dr. Paul Williamson lamented that as important a component as their music is to the almost miraculous nature of some of their worship services, which you have likened actually to jazz, it has gotten surprisingly little coverage over the years. To this point that you are making about their sincerity, I think it's the sincerity when they play their music that is what is so enticing to Abe. Do you believe that when people hear these songs about serpents and strychnine and speaking in new tongues, all of these things. Do you think that the sincerity in it will land on the casual listener out there in the world? I think so, definitely. And I think that what people would begin to do is respect kind of religious pluralism. Clearly, that's what is required in the contemporary world. If you're going to have respect for diversity, then you have to have diverse beliefs. It's actually one of the solutions to the huge dichotomy of our time is that we have to allow diversity and we have to make sure that we respect that diversity as long as it's sincere. When you and I and Abe and Dr. Williamson were all in the McDonald's in Rainsville, you know, you were telling me about the actual serpents in the faith and uh, the way they are treated. You know, I have a wife who goes to vet school and there's a little bit of concern, you know, when you are interviewing serpent handlers and all that it ties you in some negative way to the treatment of the serpents. Now, Abe has already told me in his dealings with the Coots family that, you know, they treat their serpents better than they, you know, as good or better than any household pet or any dog. But would you mind telling me how they treat their serpents? That's an interesting concern. Serpent handlers were animal rights activists way before anybody else was involved in it for two reasons. They need to have serpents. They know the serpent habitats. They go out and hunt for serpents. They're very careful to take healthy serpents and bring them back to handle in the church service. They don't take female serpents that are laying eggs because they want to be able to harvest serpents in the future. And they take very good care of them. They feed them. If they're not doing well in captivity, they release them. Jimmy Morrill doesn't have any serpents in cages. He has serpent dens where he knows, and when he wants a serpent, he goes there, picks the serpent, takes it to church, and then releases it back to the den when he's done. So think what happens. People who want to defend serpents, when they build a new house, and you've got a rattlesnake out in the field by you, what they tend to do is get rid of them. Serpent handlers, just the opposite. 
So they're very knowledgeable and sensitive about serpents and want serpents to be plentiful and survive. So they're actually very careful in producing an environment that sustains the health and the population of all of the serpents that most people want to distance from, and that is the poisonous vipers. This is an intensely personal question, but after all you've studied, after the defense you have mounted for the better treatment and understanding of these people in the faith, I was wondering if you might tell me what you personally believe. Do you think there is something more, something otherworldly that occurs when a person takes up a serpent? Are you simply agnostic to it? Again, you do not have to answer this question if you don't want to. No, that's a, that's a good question. Most people don't realize a very simple fact. The vast majority of people who attend serpent-handling churches don't handle serpents. I'm terribly comfortable believing that the serpent-handlers are genuinely called to witness to the modern world things that can be done for those who believe. And I'm firmly committed to the notion that that is a legitimate belief, and it taps into something very strong, into this common core, this this awareness, this mystical sense that all valid faiths share. And that's what I believe, that's what I share, and that's why I'm willing to share my deep abiding belief in the reality of this God that they claim to worship, and other people think they do it in a foolish way. I think that they are a sign for all of us today, the danger when religion is bypassed for a purely secular view of the world. So I strongly support them and believe in what they do, and I do what they do without handling serpents. That was part one of the season finale of Alabama Astronaut. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Up next, part two. The boys hit the road and make for Lubbock, Texas, in search of some answers from the author who first inspired Abe, 